Amen. Thank you, Nick. To Nick's credit, he did jump in last minute. Dougie is not feeling great, so he's at home. Dan also is not feeling great, and so the Brants jumped in. Thank you, Jordan and Brandy, wherever you went. Um, awesome. Uh, this, the second song was new to me, and I loved it. So thanks for introducing us to that. Uh, I'm excited, as always, to jump into God's Word with you this morning. We are tracking through the book of Ruth. Last week, Doug took us into the first five verses of this small Old Testament book, and he used the outline, Ruth is a story about love that leads to Jesus. And so this week, we get to cover verses 6 to the end of chapter 1. And I liked that outline so much, I'm just going to steal it and we're going to use it again, all right? Ruth is a story about love that leads to Jesus. Now, there are all kinds of ways that we talk about love. And what we mean when we say love matters. Ruth is a story about love. That's a bit of an ambiguous statement. Love can mean all kinds of things. What we say when we, uh, what we mean when we say the word love matters. There's a great uh, book by the author C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. I'm a big fan of this book. In fact, I quoted from it when I proposed to my wife in a parking garage um, in downtown St. Louis. That's a story for another day. I love this book. In the book, uh, C.S. Lewis describes four kinds of love. All right, The first one is called affection. Affection is the kind of love that parents commonly have for their children. It's a kind of love that is not earned by merit. It's a love that's freely given because of bond and proximity. The first love is affection. The second love is friendship. Friendship is the kind of love that is freely chosen because of things like shared values and shared interests. Friendship love is the kind of love that makes you desire to spend time with someone else because they like doing the same things you like doing. That's friendship love. The third kind of love is eros. Eros is the romantic kind of love. It's the kind of love you're talking about when you say that someone is in love with someone else. It's the kind of love that teenagers start to desire when new hormones start flowing through their body, right? Eros. Uh, number four is called charity. Charity is a unique kind of love because it's the kind of love that loves the unlovable. It's selfless and sacrificial. It's given without expecting in return. It's the rare kind of love that would make someone even love their enemy and consider someone else as of greater value than themselves. It's clear love can mean all kinds of things, isn't it? And so what we say when we, what we mean when we say the word love matters. And if you've ever wondered what does it mean when the Bible says God loves you, Ruth is a phenomenal book to read because it is a story 
all about love that leads to Jesus. The book of Ruth shows us what kind of love God has for his people. And so this morning, we want to jump back into the story uh, as we preach through Ruth. It's a little different. It's going to probably feel like story time with Eric, okay? So not a lot of uh, command and instruction, a whole lot more. What is God telling us through this little story? A quick recap of the first five verses that Doug uh, walked us through last week. There was a famine in God's land in a city called Bethlehem. A woman named Naomi lived there with her family, a husband and two sons. And as the famine struck, they determined we're going to leave Bethlehem behind and head out to Moab. Moab was a place where God's enemies lived. But they went there, and when they got to Moab, over the course of 10 years, both of her sons got married, and then her husband and both sons died. And so Ruth and her daughters-in-law spent years in Moab struggling just to survive as widows in a land where a woman without a man was very vulnerable. In the first five verses of the Bible, Ruth is emptied of nearly everything. Her home, her husband, her dignity, her family, even her name. And so that is the setting. The first five verses are very sad. We have three empty women struggling through life together in the middle of a famine in a foreign land. And that brings us to verse number six, where we pick up this morning. And verse number six right away starts out with good news, news of food. Now listen, if you've ever had a time where you got news of food when you were hungry, you know what this is like, right? Have you ever ordered pizza and the delivery driver is 10 minutes past the time that he was supposed to get there? Or you're at a family gathering and everybody's ready to eat, but the oven didn't start preheating in time, and so you just have to wait, right? In those situations when you're hungry, stuff starts happening. Like the hands on the clock tick a little slower than uh, when you're not hungry. The, uh, uh, what started as just a normal desire to eat, like I'm kind of hungry, it'd be fun to eat, all of a sudden starts morphing into a primal need. I cannot survive without eating. And people start getting hangry, right? Not just at the situation, but at each other. You know what it's like when you got to wait for food. It is not Pleasant. This is where Naomi and Ruth and Orpah have been for 10 years of famine. And then news of food comes. It's like the doorbell with the delivery driver, right? You hear it. Or the timer for the oven dings. You hear it. And all of a sudden, you're flooded with emotion. It's joy. It's relief. It's I got to act on this news. If you've ever been there, that's where Naomi is. They hear news of food. They're out in the fields in Moab, working uh, in, in, among the plants and crops. There's nothing there. And they hear God has visited his people and given them food. And the Bible gives us this picture that right away, Naomi contemplates the situation. And she says, after 10 years of famine and three funerals in Moab, I've had enough. I'm going home to Judah, 
to Bethlehem, to God's promised land where he visits his people and we're going to eat there. And so she packs up her two daughters-in-law and they head back from Moab to Judah, Bethlehem, the city in Judah, the region, right? Um, And so that, that tells us from the very first two verses that uh, uh, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are in an in-between place. They've got Moab behind them and Judah ahead of them. Before I get too far, let me read to you these verses again, all right? The passage begins, Then she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And so that sets up a new setting. They're no longer in Moab. They're on the road back to Judah. Moab is behind them. Judah is ahead of them. They're in an in-between place. And from that place, all of a sudden, Naomi has a realization. She thinks to herself, I'm I'm headed home to Judah. That's my homeland, but that's not true for the girls who are with me. This is not their home. Judah is not their place. And so the, the question before Ruth and Orpah, Naomi's two daughters-in-law, are, where will we return? Naomi is set out to return to Judah, and she thinks, these two girls, they need to decide, where are we going to return? To Judah with me, or to Moab, where they come from? And so, uh, the options that sit before them become clear as we continue to read the story. So let's keep reading. The passage picks up. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. That word return, it it happens 12 times in our passage today. Okay, that much repetition shows us that is the focus of what's happening in our chapter uh, in the Bible. Where will we return? We go on. Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And so stopped on the road in between Moab and Judah, Naomi realizes, man, I'm going home, but they are not. Their people are in Moab. Their moms have houses where they grew up as little girls into young women. And those houses are back in Moab. In Moab, there are men who would be happy to marry them and give, uh, start families with them and share houses with them. Those men live in Moab. In Judah, no men are going to marry these foreign women. It doesn't work like that. They have homes of their past and homes of their future in Moab. Their people are there. Judah offers them none of that. And so she tells them, hey, 
return to your people. Return to Moab. Now, in these days, the people of Moab were great enemies of God's people. They were actually really vicious people. They worshipped a false god named Chemosh. And worship to Chemosh included child sacrifice. And the Moabites participated in that. It was an abomination, an unthinkable thing to the people of God to worship an idol with something as extreme as that. It's unimaginable. One commentator said the difference between the two peoples was so stark that the people of God may have seen the people of Moab sort of like we might see ISIS, right? Just radically opposing worldviews, diametrically different ways of thinking and living. And so on this road between the places, it strikes Naomi that what is good for her might not be so good for these girls. And so she tells them, return to Moab. It is logical, practical advice. It is the place you are from. It is the place that you fit in. Naomi will return to her people. Ruth and Orpah should return to their people. And the girls respond. A a sort of shocking response, I think. The Bible says, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Shocking. These young women say, we know what's behind us and we know what's ahead of us. We're not going back. We're sticking with you. And Naomi hears their response and struggles to to accept it. And they, they think they know the decision that they're making, but Naomi's convinced she knows better. And so she pushes them again, says, no, you need to return. But this time she refines her answer further. Here's what the Bible says. Naomi said, turn back or return, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back or return, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you wait? therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. All right, this is kind of a weird part of the story. I'm going to be honest with you. Okay, so let me try to explain what Naomi is doing here. In these days, a woman was very dependent on a man. Very, very dependent on a man. If she had no father or husband or son, it was an incredibly vulnerable time to be a woman. Okay, Uh, I know that the world today is not like that, and so even the thought of it seems at best outdated and at worst really offensive, Um, but track with me here, all right? In our days, a woman can work a job right alongside a man, can go to school right alongside a man, can own property and do business right alongside a man. In our day, a woman is, is free to do most all of the things that men do in society. Just like men are free to do most all the things women can do in society. In many ways, the field has been leveled, but that is not true in the days of the judges when the book of Ruth was written. In these days, a woman without a man was incredibly vulnerable. And so there were laws 
written that were meant to protect women in this vulnerable state, the very place that Naomi and Ruth and Orpah found themselves in, a place without a husband or a father or a son. And so one of those laws is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it's called Leverite marriage. Levir, uh, the word Levir means brother-in-law, and so Leverite marriage is brother-in-law marriage, already getting strange. Uh, but it, it says that if a man is married and dies without a son, leaving a vulnerable widow behind, then his brother, the brother-in-law of his wife, is obligated to marry the widow and provide a son. Their first son would be considered the son of the dead man. And in that way, the brother-in-law would care for his widowed sister-in-law by providing a man to care for her for the rest of her life and providing a continuation of his brother's line. Okay? It's strange to think about in today's world. I know it's strange because when I was very first engaged with Sarah, um, I had just been reading the book of Deuteronomy, and my uh, fiancé and my twin brother and I had a dinner scheduled. And so you can see where this is going. We (laughs) are sitting at the dinner table. We have our food. Conversation's going really well. And I thought to myself, I think I can make this pretty awkward right now. Let's see how this goes. And so I got real serious. And uh, I said to them, hey, uh, Sarah, we're about to get married. You'll be my wife, and I want to provide well for you. And so I have a question for the two of you. If, If once we're married, something happens to me and I die before we have a son, would the two of you be willing to provide a son for me? And I, I kept a straight face. I knew it'd be awkward. It was way more awkward than I thought it would be. They both immediately refused, said that's gross, and didn't find it nearly as funny as I did, okay? Leverite marriage is weird to us. I would not recommend asking someone to do that for you. Uh, it's, it's uncommon. I know that. But in this world, in this culture, it was not weird. Naomi here is doing her best to tell these girls the reality of the situation if they're to to accompany her to Judah. She's saying, look, I'm too old to have kids. There's no hope of that. And even if there was hope, best case scenario, I find a man, we get married today, I get pregnant tonight with a son. Even if that happens so that you would have a brother-in-law who could do this Leverite marriage thing for you, you would have to wait a long time before he could provide you a son. In fact, you'd probably be in my situation by then. No hope to have a son of your own. You're just too old to do that. This will not work. There is no hope for you of a provider or a protector in the land of Judah. Go back to Moab. Return to your people. That's what Naomi is telling them. And the Bible tells us Ruth and Orpah's response. Orpah seems convinced. The Bible says, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah makes her choice. Her kiss here is a goodbye kiss. She leaves the in-between place and heads back to Moab. Now, Naomi watches her daughter-in-law walk away, and Ruth 
is literally the only person left in her life. Death and circumstances have taken everyone else. And as one daughter-in-law walks away from her, the other moves toward her, and the Bible says that Ruth clings to Naomi. It's the bear hug that won't let go. It's the squeeze that feels just a little too tight. It's an embrace that communicates a wholly different kind of love than a goodbye kiss. And as Ruth has her locked in that embrace, Naomi gives one last push. The Bible says, and Naomi said, see Your sister-in-law has gone back. She's returned to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi is pleading with Ruth, go with her. Make the practical decision. Return to Moab where both your people and your gods are. And at this point in the story, on the road in the middle of the two places, Naomi's lost everything. Put yourself in her shoes for a minute. She's lost her home, her husband, her kids, her dignity, her name, now one of her daughters-in-law. And as we read this part of the story, our hearts should be breaking for Naomi. Everyone has left her. She is emptied. Uh, the, The word we might use today is drained. Of everything she has and everyone who loves her. She's empty. Our hearts should be breaking for her and longing for some moment of compassion. Longing for someone to stop the abandonment who will stick with her and not leave. Longing for some glimmer of loyalty and friendship and fidelity and love. We should be longing for someone to save Naomi from loss and loneliness and emptiness. I read this part of the story and hear Naomi tell Ruth to go back to Moab and I think to myself, shut up! Stop doing that! Don't tell her to leave. You have no one else. Stop it. Does anyone else feel that way? It's long for Naomi what she does not even long for herself. When I read the story, I don't want Naomi to push Ruth away. I don't want her to be empty anymore. But when I think about my own life, I do this exact same sort of thing track with me. When we get hurt, we push people away. It's almost human nature to do that kind of thing, isn't it? We get hurt, we push people away. Like, have you ever hit a rough patch in life and had someone say to you, hey, if you need anything, let me know. I'd love to help. And you hear your lips respond, okay, thanks, I will. But your heart responds, no, I won't. We push people away. When we're hurting. Maybe like Naomi, we've just found ways to make excuses for it. Naomi knew that she couldn't provide a husband or family or people or home for these two women that she loved and had loved her. And she thinks to herself, since I can't do anything for them, since I have nothing for them, how could I ask them to stay with me? 
And she thinks love has to be transactional. And if she can't meet their needs, then why should they be required to meet her needs? In fact, in the, um, in the worship set this morning, Brandy, when you said you were hurting and Jordan said to you, hey, you bring sin, God brings saving, and you're just like, I have a hard time believing that. I think we all have a hard time believing that. I thought Jordan could preach this message. He's done it better than me, right? I, we get to this place where we think love has to be transactional. And when we don't have enough to give, we are unwilling to take and we push people away. And that's what Naomi is doing here. Ruth, go back. I have nothing left. Everyone else has left me behind. Everyone else has recognized I have nothing to give. Would you wise up to the situation and join your sister-in-law and just leave? And at this point, it leaves me, I think it leaves us almost fearfully wondering, is Ruth going to leave her too? Remember, our big idea today, Ruth is a story about love that leads to Jesus. And it's this moment in the story right here in Ruth's response where we get the first picture of the kind of love that this story is all about. And so I want to read Ruth's words to you. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes, emptied of everything and everyone, and you're begging the last person in your life to leave too. And hear Ruth's response. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return, there's our word, from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, bury me. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Friends, Ruth is a story all about covenant love, committed love, a never-leaving or forsaking kind of love. In Ruth's response, she proves it to us, I think, in three ways. She shows us covenant posture, covenant language, and covenant attitude. All right? This is the kind of love the story is all about. Here's what I mean. The Bible says Ruth clung to Naomi. That is a, cov a covenant love posture. It's exactly the word that the Bible uses to describe how God's people respond to his love. Let me show it to you. As Moses encouraged God's people to realize God's promises and enter the promised land, a land not like the wilderness where there's no food and water, a land that's flowing with good things, milk and honey and amazing, uh, an amazing place as Moses encouraged God's people to enter the promised land and not turn back literally to Moab. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast 
That Hebrew word for hold fast is the same word that the author of Ruth uses to say Ruth clung to Naomi. So love the Lord uh, your God, obey his voice and cling to him for he is your life and length of days. This is a Ruth-like story. The people of God are in an in-between place with life and blessing and the promised land on one side and death and curse and Moab on the other side. And Moses says, choose life. Hold fast and cling to God. It is the posture of covenant love and commitment. All right? So one, she shows us the posture of covenant love. Number two, she uses the language of covenant love. She does this thing where she says, I am so committed to you, we will be nearly indistinguishable one from the other. Her words Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. She goes on and on and on. I will not be distinguished from you by where we go or who we live with or who we worship or where we die. We're one. It echoes the covenant language that God used with his people. Look at what God said to his people in the book of Exodus. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is clinging together language. It is covenant love language, never leaving or forsaking language. One commentator wrote, in her heart allegiance, Ruth is no longer a Moabite. She owes no more loyalty to Moab or her people or their gods. Ruth has covenant posture, covenant language, and she has an attitude of covenant love. I want to show it to you too. The Bible says, and when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, it's an attitude word, right? Determined to go with her, she said no more. And that word determined is a covenant word. We see it in God's charge to Joshua as he's about to enter the promised land. He says, Be strong and courageous. That Hebrew word translated courageous here is the word that in the book of Ruth is translated determined. So God tells Joshua, be strong and determined. Do not fear or be in dread of them, your enemies, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so Joshua is preparing to enter into a land where the people are bigger than he is, the city's walls are more fortified than his are, their armies are better equipped than his army is, and what gave him strength and courage and determination? It was the covenant that God had made with him, that he would be with him and never leave him. Determination is an attitude that comes from covenant love. And so Ruth has covenant posture, covenant language, covenant love. The book of Ruth is a story all about covenant love. And yet, We see it written on these pages. We see it in the context of the whole story of Scripture. But in this story, at this point in time, Naomi does not see it yet. When she and Ruth get back to Judah, to her hometown, Bethlehem, her friends see her, and name, the meaning of names have a ton of relevance in the book of Ruth. Her friends see her after 10 years. They say, is that you, Naomi? And Naomi means pleasant 
okay? And so she hears her friend say that. Is that you, Naomi, pleasant one? And she says, nope, I am no longer pleasant. Things have been so bad for me over the last 10 years. Don't even call me that name anymore. Instead, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. It is clear that at this point in the story, Naomi just does not see the way that she is loved. Have you ever been there? Like, you, you kind of get the idea, somebody loves me, but you just can't see it. You're blind to it. Naomi summarizes her understanding of the situation saying this, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. What a summary, right? Three contrasts, uh, an actor, an action, and an adjective. Good preacher's got to get some alliteration in, right? At some point, an actor, an action, an adjective. We could compare what she said like this. I went away full. An actor, an action, an adjective. The Lord brought me back or literally returned me empty. Actor, an action, an adjective. And in this comparison that she makes, I think she gets two out of three. She gets the actor and the action right. Naomi is the one that went away. She left Bethlehem for Moab. She left God's place for what she thought was a better place. She went to Moab thinking that it could fulfill all the promises that it made to her for life and uh, food and to meet her needs. But instead, she only found hunger and emptiness and death. So when she says, I went away, she got that part spot on. But when she says, I went away full, she's just, she's not wrong, but she's not quite right. Because the famine had already started. And by the time she set out to leave Bethlehem in Judah for Moab, she's already got God's promises in her rearview mirror. The emptying had already begun. So she may have gone away thinking she was full, but the emptying had already started. In contrast, the Lord brought her back, and I think she got that right. Literally, God returned her to Bethlehem. He drew her back to his place, the very place that verse 6 told us the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so the Lord brought her back to Bethlehem, a name that literally means house of bread. Naomi thought she was returning empty. She's just not quite right. She doesn't see it yet. But look at how chapter 1 ends, the last verse. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite with her. Uh, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Naomi thinks she's empty, but she just doesn't quite see it yet. Ruth is with her and the barley harvest has just begun in the place where God visits his people. Pretty amazing. That's not where the story ends, but that's where our look at it ends this morning. Uh, Ruth is a story about covenant love that leads to Jesus. And while I think I have to make a bit of a step to get to Jesus, I can't end without it, <laughs> okay? So how does this story lead us to Jesus? Um, in Ruth's commitment to Naomi, she said this, May the Lord do so to me. May he bury me six feet under. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
In other words, Ruth's commitment to Naomi, this covenant love that she put on display, she intends to, to, to hold fast to as long as she lives, till death parts them. And she says that because, honestly, that's the best commitment she can make. Once she's dead, she would have to abandon Naomi the same way her husband and both of her sons had abandoned her. Not by intent, but by circumstance. She has no power for her love to last longer than her life. Are you tracking? So she says, may God do so and more to me if anything but death separates me. There's a caveat. 